welcome to the weekly podcast of River Valley Church. We're glad you're here. Our heart is to lead people to Jesus and launch them into their God-given purpose. So we pray you would encounter God in a fresh, new way today. To learn more about our church, visit rivervalley.org. Now, let's tune in to this week's message. We just thought it was awesome to have our 15-year anniversary uh, be able to have Sparkle be a part of that and have Priscilla Schreier to be a part of it. I mean, just an amazing, amazing preacher. And we have loved her ministry. And I thought, you know, we want to have her bring the word today and give us something to celebrate. And uh, it just has allowed me to focus and take it all in and take it all in. And I'm receiving with you. So guys, if you haven't heard Priscilla, you're in for something special. And ladies, you know it as well. So I won't uh, go on any longer, but I want you to give a big River Valley Church welcome to Priscilla. Would you do that this evening? Amen. Well, good evening, everybody. It is a treat to have a, to, to be able to be with you all this entire weekend. I'm so grateful. Miss Becca, that you would have invited me to be a part of the Sparkle Conference for several reasons, but not the least of which is that it gave me a reason to pull out everything that has Sparkle capacity in my closet and, <laughs> and have an opportunity to wear it. Thank you very much for that. And then to know, Pastor, that you would include me in your 15-year anniversary. That, that extra invitation is an honor and it's a thrill. Um, we have such great regard for the leadership at this church, and so we're grateful that y'all include us in this celebration. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. I pray in these few moments you will speak clearly to us, that it will be powerful, impactful, life-changing, and that each and every one of us will know that we've been tonight in the very presence of God himself. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. About three years ago, I was in a hotel room in Nashville, Tennessee. My sister and I were getting dressed as we prepared for an event that I was getting ready to speak at. As we were preparing, we flipped channels, came across CNN headline news. There was a guy that was a pretty interesting looking character. He was being interviewed on the program and so he just captured our attention because he looked so strange. I would come to find out that his name was Brian Head Welch, the lead guitarist for a heavy metal band called Korn, K-O-R-N. Now, I don't know if you can tell by looking at me or not, but I am not really a heavy metal music listening kind of sister. <laughs> so I've never heard of Brian Welsh, nor have I heard of Korn, but I'm looking at him and he's got braids hanging down all over the place. They're dyed jet black and he's got on a goth style type makeup tattoos peering out from underneath his tank top. And Crystal, my sister and I were just riveted watching. And then we were more riveted when the, the, uh, the conversation continued because the, the, the interview was about why he is no longer the lead guitarist for this band. And he basically said on primetime television, he said, I was killing myself on that lifestyle, the drugs, the alcohol, the illicit relationships, and it occurred to me if I didn't change my life, I was literally going to die. And he said, one night I was in a city, I don't remember what city I was in, we were touring and we had binged all night long. And I just had to get some fresh air. I left the room in the wee hours of the morning or the early morning hours. It was a Sunday morning, he said. I went through the lobby of the hotel, out onto the street and walked down the street. He said, I stumbled across a church. I walked in the back doors of the church. He said, someone met me there. They saw me and I was in the sweat, the makeup smeared from the night before. And they put their arm around me, walked me into the sanctuary, sat me beside them. And that day they, they basically 
loved me into the body of Christ. He said, I gave my life to Christ, and in the days and weeks that follow, the taste for the drugs and the alcohol and the illicit relationships and the fame and all of that, the taste for that stuff just started to leave me. Well, you should have seen the face of the news anchor. (laughs) He said, who are you saying did this for you? Oh, he walked right into that one. (laughs) Brian Welsh said, I'm telling you, it was Jesus Christ. He said, "You're, you're saying to me, you don't feel the pull and the lure for the drugs and the alcohol anymore. Brian said, you must not understand. That part of me was crucified with Jesus Christ on Calvary. And I've been made alive together with him. Well, at this point, me and Crystal are doing the holy dance on the bed in the hotel. <laughs> we, we couldn't believe that, that God's truth was being declared so clearly on primetime television. A month later, back at home, a month later, I get a phone call from a program on Christian television that tapes in our area. Their studios are in our area. I'm from Dallas. It's the James Robison show. They tape about 45 minutes from where we live. So whenever one of their real guests calls and cancel, they will call me to see if I'll drive down the road and fill in for them. They told me that they were taping four shows. They needed me for two of those programs. And so I showed up that night not knowing who the other guest was going to be for the other two until I sat down for dinner with James and Betty Robison and across from the table from me, the other guest for the night, Brian Head Welsh. All those braids hanging down, still dyed jet black, tattoos peering out from under his white tank top that he had on. I never thought in all my life that I would be so excited to meet somebody from a heavy metal band. (laughs) I was just taking pictures and getting autographs. I was so happy to meet that man. And when his interview was taking place, I sat down like a little schoolgirl with my chin in my hands because I wanted to hear everything he said. And there was tons of it that was riveting, but I got to tell you, the one thing he said that stuck with me was this. He said that most people don't realize when I became a Christian, we were just signing our fifth record deal. It promised each and every one of us in the band millions upon millions of dollars. Everybody in the band had signed the contract except me, and I told my friends that I had to go home and think about it. What I really meant was pray about it, but as a new Christian, I didn't even know how to do that. He said, I went home and I just said, Lord, you need to tell me what to do. And he said, I had a brand new Bible. I just started thumbing through it, and I happened upon a verse that said, They left everything to follow Jesus. He said, I called up my friends, who, by the way, weren't just his bandmates. These guys had grown up together from from elementary school. They formed this band and rose to success together. He said, I called my best friends and told them, I'm sorry, but I'm leaving everything to follow Jesus. And then he said, "But, but even though that was a tough decision to make, now, one by one, those bandmates are coming to know Jesus Christ as Savior. And they following after him as well. Amen. Amen. And so now if you're, if you're looking up Brian Welsh online, you will find that he's still packing out stadiums. But he and lots of members of his band are now in ministry together. And people that would never darken the doorsteps of a church like this one, they are filling the arenas to hear about a man who met the Lord, who chose to stick out like a sore thumb, to be different, to be unusual, to be unique, even if it meant at the expense of friendships that he's had for a long time. And as a result of that, throngs of people are coming into the kingdom of God because one person chose to take a stand. And I just wonder what would happen if Minnesota was full of Christians who chose not to just be Christians in name only, but actually take a stand for the name of Jesus Christ. 
to go against the culture, to stick out like a sore thumb, to be the weird, unusual ones, to be what Peter called aliens and strangers to this world. What would happen if you and I, how many people's destinies are hinging upon just you and me choosing to be what I call the one in a millions? One in a million. I get that term from the children of Israel. There were approximately two million of them that left Hebrew captivity and all two million of them had the same opportunity on the table. They could walk into the promised land, milk and honey, experiencing the abundance of God. Do you know of that original group of two million? Only two ever actually made it. That's two in two million. One in a million. And one of the guys that were one of those two was Joshua. Joshua was one in a million. He had what God himself called a different spirit. Amongst a whole group of people that were followers of Yahweh, he said, but Joshua and Caleb's spirit is different. Do you know that there are millions of people who have placed faith in Jesus Christ? Millions of people who are darkening the doors of their church and, and, and um, enjoying fellowship in the bodies of, body of Christ. Millions of people that are doing that, but there's only actually a handful that are experiencing the abundance, everything that God came to give, that are hearing the voice of God, experiencing the power of God, walking in the fruit and the giftings of God's spirit. And listen, if there's only going to be a handful that are actually experiencing the abundance that he's come to give, I don't know about you, but I'd like to be one of them. And so it occurs to me that I need to try to figure out what made Joshua one in a million. And one of the most clear passages in scripture where you and I get to figure out what made him so different and unique is in Joshua chapter 3. If you have your Bible and want to turn to Joshua chapter 3, you can. If not, I'm going to read these verses real clearly to you so that you will know exactly what it is that the Bible is saying to us. But as those of you that are turning do turn there, let me tell you what is happening before we get to Joshua chapter 3. At this point in the children of, his, of Israel's pilgrimage to the promised land, they've already been wandering for 40 years. They've been following Moses, but at this point, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, right before Joshua begins, Moses has died, and Joshua is just stepping up to the helm of leadership. In chapter 1 and 2 of the book of Joshua, God is giving him specific directions and instructions on how to achieve success, and he says to him, Joshua, today can be the day if you will Obey me, believe me that I am who I say I am and that I can accomplish what I tell you that I can accomplish in your life. If you'll believe that, then today will be the day that y'all cross over this last boundary, the Jordan River, and that finally you and all of these people step foot into the promised land and experience the abundance that I have purpose for you to experience. Uh, Joshua didn't have any specifics, no directions on how he was supposed to get two million people across the body of water. He just had a word from God that if he'd obey, he could do it. We find out how Joshua responds in Joshua chapter 3, verse 1. It says, then Joshua rose early in the morning. Let's just stop right there. I don't know about you, but oftentimes when the Lord gives me instructions, directions, things that I know his spirit is compelling me to do, whether they're small things or sometimes even larger things, the last thing I do is wake up early in the morning to be obedient to him. Oftentimes I procrastinate, make excuses, try to figure out how I can skirt around the instructions that he has given me. Never, like Joshua, am I compelled when there's a challenging thing that God has set before me. Never am I compelled to be immediately obedient to God. But the Joshua spirit, the one in a million spirit, is the, is the person who will act immediately in obedience to God. 
Joshua wakes up early in the morning to get busy doing what it is that God asked him to do. He has no idea how he's going to do it, but he just responds immediately, as quickly as he possibly can. This was how Abraham responded. Do you remember? In Genesis chapter 22 and 23, Yahweh tells God, go sacrifice your son. And Abraham said, well, you must mean Ishmael. And God said, oh, no, not Ishmael. Your beloved son, Isaac. And it says, early the next morning, he got up to do it. Here's my question. Would that ram have been caught in the bush had he waited two more weeks? Would he have missed out on the miracle of a lifetime had he procrastinated in doing what it was that God was compelling him to do? Joshua shows us we've got to act immediately in obedience to God. This was so different than the, the leader who had come before him. Do you remember in Exodus chapter 3 when God had met up with Moses and had said to him, Mo, you've been leading these sheep for long enough. It is time for you now to lead a human flock. And he says to him, I am putting you at the helm of leadership. Two million people are going to follow you out of Pharaoh's bondage and into the promised land. Moses had said, you've got to be kidding me. He said, who am I that I should be able to do that? And God had basically said to him, it doesn't matter who you are because I'm going with you. And then Moses said, well, who are you? <laughs> and God said, I am that I am. Do you remember that? And then Moses said, well, what if they don't believe me? And God said, I've got that covered too. What is that in your hand? He said, if you'll use that rod at my bidding, it will confirm to anybody who comes in your path that I have sent you. And Moses said, well, you know I don't speak well, right? <laughs> excuse after excuse. And we laugh at Moses, but we're kind of just like him. Figuring out why we don't have enough time, enough energy, enough patience, enough diligence, enough whatever, money, to do what it is that God is compelling us to do. Do you know that he calls us not because we're equipped? He calls us, and then when we respond immediately in obedience, he equips us to handle the task at hand. That's his business. That's his job. He gives us himself, the Holy Spirit, to empower us to be what we cannot be in our own strength. That's what he's good at when people will act immediately in obedience to God. The second thing that I discovered about um, Joshua that was compelling to me is that it says in the bottom half of verse 3, he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim. They came to the Jordan and they lodged there before they crossed. Verse 2 tells us how long they were there. It says, it came about at the end of three days. Get the picture now. Two million Hebrews have moved the seven miles from Shittim all the way to the edge of the Jordan River. They are at a place specifically called Gilgal. That's the place at the Jordan River where they would all be crossing. And they sat there on the edge of the Jordan River for three days. Now, they were probably there for several reasons, one of which was that the officers in the group needed to go through and organize and try to orchestrate getting all these people and their belongings and their loved ones all across the body of water. But this three days gave these people an opportunity to experience something that had they just gone to the edge of the water and gone right over, they wouldn't have had the chance to experience. And that was this. You see, they were crossing in April, the month of April. It was harvest season. That means all of the mountains to the north of the Jordan River were melting all their, their, um, their winter snow. 
The runoff was intense. It was all descending into the Jordan River, and the Jordan River itself descends. And so there is water that is just passing violently, rushing madly at this point when they are gathered on the edge of this body of water. This was no calm, placid body of water they were looking at for three days. For 24, 48, 72 hours, they are staring at what would have amounted to be the Colorado River at flood stage. It was unbelievably um, unimaginable to them that they would have to cross this big old body of water. And so for three days, they had the opportunity for fear to well in up, up in them as they looked at this seemingly impossible, impassable body of water. And knowing their track record, they probably would have stayed right there on the edge of the promised land for another 40 years had it not been for Joshua who had the spirit of the one in a million. Because Jack, Joshua not only acted immediately in obedience to God, but Joshua acted fearlessly in the face of insurmountable odds. I want to ask you if there's something that you're sitting on the precipice of in your life, and the more you look at it, the more unbelievably afraid you get that you're not going to be able to handle it. And the more you look at it, the more you study it, the more you consider it, it is occurring to you that you're not going to be able to handle it, and fear is welling up in you. Joshua's story is encouraging you and I not to get so paralyzed by fear that we can't get busy doing what it is that God has called us to do. Do you know that the enemy is after you and he's after me? He's trying his best to steer us clear of God's will for our life. Once we became Christians, he knew that he could no longer destroy us. But he is going to spend the rest of his days and our days trying to distract us. Trying to do everything he can to keep us from living to our full God-given potential. And so this is his, this is his handiwork. This is his, how crafty he is. What he will do is stamp a spirit of fear on anything that could very well be God's best for you. Because he knows if you're afraid of it, you'll st steer clear of it. And that thing that you're steering clear of could very well be the Jordan River that's designed to take you right into God's best for you. And so, my friend, if, you, if, you're, if something, the Holy Spirit is bringing to your mind something right now that you know you haven't been doing just because, bottom line reason is that you're afraid, then I would consider whether or not it's the enemy's attempt in your life to keep you from God's best. I have three sons. I was telling the women today, I have three sons. They are almost eight years old, six years old, and our surprise little two-year-old. We still look at him every day. We have no idea exactly how that happened, but <laughs> my boys for Christmas got this little um, toy. It's a little machine that catapults baseballs out of it. Uh, at a certain frequency and a certain velocity, these little baseballs come roaring out and they just stand there and they hit the balls. And one of my sons saw his brother hitting ball after ball. And I mean, the balls were coming, they were firing out one after the other. And the more he watched, the more daunted he became. He just felt like he couldn't do it. He, he just said, Mom and Dad, I, I can't do it. Let him do it. I'm not going to be able to do it. And we just said, boy, you better get in front of there and try it. <laughs> and I encouraged him and I encouraged him to do it. And the reason why I encouraged him to do it is because I knew something he did not know. And that is that right before his turn, his daddy had gone behind that little machine, had opened up the flap that hides all the gears, and he had uh, manipulated the gears so that the velocity of the balls and the frequency that they were being shot out of the machine was adapted and suited to meet the needs of that particular boy. And so all he needed to know is that if he would step up to the plate, 
he would be in an exact position he needed to be in to achieve maximum results and victory. Here's what you need to know, my friend. That thing that you're afraid of, there's no need to be afraid. You have a daddy that loves you. He's gone behind the scenes and he's manipulated things so that when you and I step up to the plate, you and I are set to have a victory. We are set to achieve maximum results. He's just looking for someone who'll have the Joshua spirit and do what it is that he's asking us to do. Do it like Joshua did it, acting immediately and acting fearlessly. There's a third thing that he did. It says that they told the people, verse 3, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after that. Go after it. Listen to that again. He commands the people saying, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, when you see the Ark, only when you see the Ark being carried by the priests, then you go after it. He says clearly to the people, don't go on your own whims in terms of crossing this body of water. Don't start crossing because you think this is a good time and a good place and a good season to cross. Uh-uh. You wait until you see the Ark of the Covenant being carried by the priest. The Ark of the Covenant, as I'm sure you all well know, represented the very presence of God with the people. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant was the Word of God itself, the Bible, God's presence, God's Word to the people was in that box. And it represented God being with the people. And Joshua new leader in charge. I love that Joshua didn't say, I'm the leader, follow me. Joshua said, I know who's really in charge here. He's the leader. We better all follow him. And he says to them, listen carefully, wait till you see some priests carrying it. On this your 15-year anniversary, I want to not only encourage, but celebrate the fact that you've got leadership at this church that is serious about pointing you to the presence and the word of God. Listen, guys, everybody doesn't have it this good. Everybody's not in a church where the leadership is not so impressed with their own opinions that they forget it's not about their opinions. It's about what God says on a particular topic. And you have the privilege to be in a church where they are holding high the torch of the presence and the power of God's word to you. And so you and I have the privilege. Amen. That's a privilege. And so I would encourage you to do what Joshua did, that is act immediately in obedience to God, act fearlessly in the face of insurmountable odds, and acknowledge God's presence before making a move. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 puts it this way, do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. This is what I love so much about Jesus while he was here on planet Earth. During his three years of ministry, Do you know how many miracles he could have performed? I mean, he performed a lot, but do you know how many more he could have? How many messages he could have preached to large groups of people that the disciples oftentimes thought it would be a good time to impress them and let them know that you are who you say you are? The impressive thing about Jesus is not just that he did the Father's will. The impressive thing about Jesus is that he did the Father's will and nothing else. That when all these good things were clamoring for his attention, he would always say, you know what? I'm glad it's a good thing, but if it's not a God thing, this is Jesus's way of putting it. John 5, 19, he'd say, I only do what I see the Father doing it. Texas translation, if the Father ain't doing it, I ain't doing it. He acknowledged God's presence before making a move. Um, I, I uh, have a husband who is not here. It's so much more fun to talk about him when he is here. Um, <laughs> 
but I will tell you that Jerry is an electronic gadget kind of guy. He just likes electronics. And he's the kind of guy that when we fly into a new city and we've got to rent a car, he will get the navigational system that the rental car company will allow you to have in the car. But he also travels with this GPS Garmin thingy. So when we're in the car, he has the navigational system that comes with the car. He's got his GPS navigational system thingy that he traveled from home with. And he also has on his iPhone the Maps application. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm the kind of girl that, you know, I just prefer to call the people that live where we're going and ask them, what would be the best way to get from, from the airport to where you are? Oh, but not my man. Oh, no. He wants to program not into one, not into two, but into all three devices, the, the address of where it is we're going. I don't know if he's trying to race himself to the destination. I don't know exactly what it is he's doing, but I will never forget on one particular occasion, we were in Mississippi, hour and a half drive from the airport to the church we were going to, and I was set for an hour and a half drive. Three hours in, It was only the restraining power of the Holy Spirit of God <laughs> that was keeping me from killing that man. I, I just bet you there might be a few wives in here that know what I'm talking about. Everything in me just wanted to say, will you please stop and ask for some directions? <laughs> and so I said to him in the best, sweetest, godliest voice I knew how. In fact, you know how we have to pose things like questions so, so that our husbands will think they came up with it. <laughs> Precious, what if we call the people that, that are there? <gasps> he agreed that it would be a brilliant idea to do that. He called them. The volume was turned up on his phone, so I could hear when this lady answered the phone, and I could hear her say, I wish you would have called me sooner. <laughs> and then she said, we live way in the backwoods of Mississippi and they've paved some new roads back here. She said a lot of these new roads haven't been picked up by a lot of the navigational systems yet. She said, had you called me, I would have not only been able to save you the extra hours that you put into this drive, I would have gotten you here sooner than an hour and a half. I wish you would have called me because see, I've been this way before from the, from the, uh, the airport to the church. I've been that way before so I could have navigated that way for you. Joshua says there's one reason we're gonna follow God and not our own ideas the end of verse 4, the last line he says, because we have not been this way before. Do you know that God has already been in your future? He knows what's the best way to get there. Don't allow the ideals of men or our own ideas and opinions and ideals to steer us off of the path that he has set out for us. Acknowledge the presence of God. Finally, Verse 5, one more thing that one in a million Joshua does. It says, then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Listen to that again. Nothing's happened yet. They haven't crossed the body of water at all. There's no miracle to report as of yet. But he says to these people, consecrate yourselves today in anticipation of what God's going to do tomorrow. I love that. He says, I know we see no proof yet, but just start acting today 
like God is who he says he is and will do something miraculous tomorrow. Just start being different today in anticipation of what God is getting ready to do. The one in a million spirit acts immediately, acts fearlessly, acknowledges God's presence, and anticipates God's miracles. What would happen if you and I lived? How would it change our decisions today if we weren't making decisions based on fear of the what-ifs, but we were making decisions based on the fact that we believe the God of this Bible is really not just a God for history. He is the God that acts present day, present tense, 2010 in our here and now circumstances, that we fully anticipate that he's going to move hugely in our lives, in our marriages, in our finances, in our churches, in our schools, in our universities, in our organizations, in our neighborhoods, on our workplaces, that he can transform anything. It would transform the way we live, wouldn't it? If we acted today like he was going to make good on his word tomorrow. It's the spirit of the one in a million. There's a man named Roger Bannister. Roger Bannister was the first person to ever run the mile in under four minutes. He was told that it could not be done. In fact, he worked hard to get it done. It took him quite a while. When he finally ran that mile in under four minutes, he broke records. In the year that followed, 30 people ran the mile in under four minutes. It's almost like everybody was waiting for there to just be one somebody to break the barrier. We're always waiting on one But what if you are the one you've been waiting for? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for Joshua and thank you for his living example. Lord, I pray that you would make us, like Joshua, like Brian Head Welsh, one in a million. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.